When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Factor. If you want to eat better this year and are looking for fast, healthy, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to eat and easy on your budget, Factor is the perfect solution. Sign and save right now by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV 50 and use code talk TV 50 to get 50% off your order. That's code talk TV 50 at factormeals.com forward slash talk TV 50 to get 50% off. Now tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now and again on the second half of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Ed Robertson, welcome to this week's edition of TV Confidential Radio Talk Show about television. Now we'll welcome back Lee Goldberg. In our second hour, Lee Goldberg, New York Times bestselling novelist and the Edgar Award-nominated writer and producer of such popular TV shows as Diagnosis Murder, Monk, Psych, Hunter, Nero Wolf, Sliders, and Spencer for Hire. Lee has three new crime novels out right now, one of which, Dreamtown, is the latest edition of his popular Eve Ronan mystery novel series, while another, Malibu Burning is about an arson investigation team that is led by a man whom Lee describes as a cross between Walter Matthau and Lieutenant Columbo. We'll talk to Lee about that, plus I'll share a few memories of working with Dick Van Dyke on Diagnosis Murder and more when Lee Goldberg joins us in our second hour. You'll be stay tuned for that coming up later on this hour. We will play part two of a conversation that began last week with legendary record producer, music manager, author, journalist, and documentary filmmaker Simon Napier-Bell. Simon's books on the music industry include You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, a rollicking look at the music scene in London during the swinging 60s that also depicts Simon's entry into the record industry, including his years managing the Yardbirds. You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, of course, is also the name of the song that Simon co-wrote, along with Vicki Wickham, that became a huge hit for Dusty Springfield in 1966. Simon will tell us the backstory of the song, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, and more when we play part two of our conversation with Simon Napier-Bell later on in this hour. We hope you stay tuned for that as well. In the meantime, and speaking of the British invasion, we'll begin our first hour by playing part two of a special edition of the Sounds of Lost Television that originally aired in February 2014, in which Phil Grace and I commemorated the then 50th anniversary, now 60th anniversary, of the Beatles' first official appearance on American television, their historic uh, appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, February 9th, 1964. And as, as, as part of our remembrance, Phil has put together a, a series of clips that chronicle not only the Beatles' uh, first appearances 
in America throughout the year 1964, but also their impact on American culture. And uh, the initial reaction, the initial critical reaction to the Beatles, uh, not only in terms of, you know, the old guard and how, and how they really represented the, uh, the generation gap between um, adults and young people back in the 60s, but also how uh, the Beatles' music was not necessarily, did not necessarily do well on the radio until after their appearance on Sullivan. Uh, absolutely true. Uh, I mean, the Beatles seemed to come out of nowhere to conquer America in 1964. Um, and it, it really all began at the end of 1963, uh, when on October 13th, uh, they did a Sunday night at the London Palladium, which was uh, comparable to the Ed Sullivan show mm -hmm. in London. And the uh, name Beatlemania was coined at that time. And since then, as we've been listening to uh, a retrospect of that first year uh, in Beatleland, mm -hmm. when uh, the Beatles first took root here in America, towards the end of that first year, there were a couple of very, very positive shows that uh, finally were broadcast on television that represented um, what the Beatles were uh, creating in terms of reversing popular culture in music and giving a lot of credit, credit that was not given when they initially came to America. Now, you use the term Beatlemania. Beatlemania happens to be the name of the special that aired on ABC television on September 18th, 1964, about two months after the release of Hard Day's Night in the U.K. On that particular program, hosted by Bill Butel, appeared Bruce Morrow, Cousin Brucey, who's still with us, and Scott Muni. So right now we're going to hear a clip of the ABC documentary Beatlemania, which originally aired on September 18, 1964. Probably the most popular people in the world today are the Beatles. To quote one of them, Ringo Starr, that's fab. To the youngest of us, that's the same as gear. To the less adaptable of us, that's great or keen or maybe even 23 skidoo. Well, it ought to be great when you're paid a small fortune every time you step onto stage. It ought to be with 80 million records sold and $20 million earned in only two years. And it must be great to have roughly three quarters of all the young ladies in the world madly in love with you. Why are they? Well, maybe it's because the Beatles are healthy and funny, friendly and simple in a world that's pretty complicated and pretty hostile. One of them said, we don't take anything seriously except the money. Bruce, a lot of people try to explain the Beatles in various ways. Now, you're a disc jockey who knows their music, knows them pretty well. What do you think is the secret of their success? Well, Billy, real quick, like, I think we can talk. Well, so many teenagers have told me, I said to them, why do you love the Beatles? Why are the Beatles the Beatles? You know what they tell me? They're different. All right, they're different. What does that mean, Scott? Well, in I, what way are they different? Uh, they're, well, they're different in, number one, they have a whole new approach to music. Everyone loves them. And I think most important, not only their sound on records and their sound with a song, is their appearance. They're like little teddy bears, and I think everybody wants to cuddle them. And, of course, 95% right. of their are girls, right? Well, I'll right. tell you something. Remember the time the Beatles opened here in New York City with a new movie open, Hard Day's Night? Remember what happened over there? We happened to meet Ringo. We asked him about, well, his reaction to the wonderful Beatles. We happened to be with them. And it was a wonderful, wonderful evening. Remember that? And how the people reacted, yes. How do you like the success of your movie? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, it knocks me out. You know, it's a rave review. I know, it's, you know, what can you say? It's just marvelous. 
storm. The Beatles were home earlier this year, as you know, to make their first film. A United Artists release. A hard day's night. Right. Take a look at those English police when they call themselves Bobbies. And it was just a hard day's work for them. Nothing changed since the boys left in that world tour. Look what's happening over there. Everywhere that big Jaguar went, all of London seemed determined to go with him. Of course, the boys were only trying to get the work and they get on the location for their film, and the crowd wouldn't let them. Of course, the location here is London's famed Paddington Railroad Station. And it seems that London and even the police were having a good time. Everybody was having a lot of fun. You've noticed uh, in this film, this one, they're having a lot of fun. There's so much equipment in there. Lights. Let me see the lights these fellows have to carry. There's a tremendous crew there, and even the crew had a good time setting up over there. Look at the crowd. Look at their love. Even notice during this rehearsal and setting up of the equipment, Scott, the love for the Beatles. You'll see the crowd. If you'll notice right here, some lucky ones are being picked to be extras in the film. And the idea of being in a film with the Beatles, well, look, it's almost more than the fans can stand. That's something, you know. For that big scene, by the way, the girl said, what are we going to do? We're not actresses. And the director said, we'll just do it from naturally. That means, of course, you have to chase John, George, Paul, and Ringo right for the cameras. And I think this came very, very easily, Scotty, for the team. Just, just having a look. Here we go. Watch this. This is in the film, but this happens all over the world every day. They didn't need to be coached for this. Look at this guy telling him he didn't have to tell him. That's how the beginning of the film opens, if you remember. But here we are behind the scenes. Isn't this great? Look at this. They know the boys. Notice here, as if, uh, of course, the Beatle haircut, as if wearing that hair wasn't enough. Paul adds a false beard for the film. <laughs> a disguise like that doesn't fool anyone, though, because a Beatle is a Beatle, and that's all there is to it. Bill Butel, Scott Marl, and Bruce Marl, Uncle Brucey, commenting on Beatlemania, which is also the name of the ABC TV special that originally aired on September 18, 1964, that uh, not only provides a behind-the-scenes look of the Beatles on tour, but also behind-the-scenes look of the classic film A Hard Day's Night. The special originally aired uh, September 18, 1964. Audio courtesy of Phil Grice, ATV Audio.com, as part of the Sounds of Lost Television. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. One more item if you're like me and want to eat better this year. Our friends at Factor have more than 35 inexpensive, pre-prepared, ready-to-heat and ready-to-eat, chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved meals that will make eating better every day fun and delicious and your weekly meal planning a whole lot easier with no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup necessary. Check out that stuff by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk. TV50. If you go to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50, you'll find more than 35 different options a week to choose from that are ready to eat and, best of all, less expensive than takeout. Sign and save right now by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50 and use code talk TV50 to get 50% off your order. Factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50. Use promo code talk TV50 to get 50% off your order. That's code TV 50 at factormeals.com forward slash TV 50 to get 50% off. Hi everybody, this is your cousin Brucey, and you are listening to TV Confidential. And now, not confidential, here's Cousin Ed. 
I can't get over uh, that statement regarding $20 million earned. $1964. Yes. In two years. It's probably more like $100 million. Unbelievable. <laughs> and, and I love what Cousin Brucey stated when asked, you know, what makes these Beatles so popular. And he came out with a, a very simple answer. They're different. They look different. Their sound is different. And we were, at that time, post-JFK assassination, in need of something yes, uplifting. Exactly. exactly. And this, this timing was perfect. And, and they brought with them something very different that we all needed. And in, in their own way, they were photogenic, which was, which was sort of a forerunner to the way music, musical performers are packaged today, or at least what, what the record producers look for. I mean, it's, it's, you, it's not just enough to be able to sing the song well, but you've got to be able to perform well on television, and, be, and the Beatles were certainly able to do that. You know, I always think about the fate of Peter Best. Peter Best preceded Ringo Starr. He was yes. the drummer. <laughs> and how his career, you know, would have changed dramatically if he, uh, for whatever the reason, who knows the exact inside reason why the split occurred, but um, fate would have it that Ringo would come aboard and Best would be uh, relegated to... Uh, uh, anonymity in, in, in many respects. It's the answer to a question on Trivial Pursuit. Did you ever see the film The Ruddles? The, the Ruddles was a Eric Idol of Monty Python. Uh, he and I think Christopher Guest put together a a mockumentary, the first mockumentary. This is like five years before Spinal Tap. And Not it familiar. was, I believe it aired on NBC, and it was a mock documentary on a Beatles-like group. Only they didn't call themselves the Beatles, they called themselves the Ruddles, and it was a parody on Beatlemania. And in speaking of Pete Best, one of the running gags in the film was they had several drummers leading up to the eventual you know, equivalent of Ringo in the film. Ed Begley, a very young Ed Begley Jr., played one of the. I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether he was supposed to be Pete Best, but he was supposed to be someone like him. And he was one of the drummers. They, they said. Well, one of the drummers actually exploded on, on stage, and they actually have footage of the, dr of the drummer imploding, so I was just thinking of this, but it was, uh, it was, it was very funny. I love Ed Bagley Sr. Yes. and Jr. They were great actors. Yes, both. Are great. Uh, well, Ed, the younger Ed's, one Ed is, still is. is still here, Ed yeah. still is, and, 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 and Ed Sr. certainly was. Now, Beatlemania originally aired on ABC September 1964. The final clip you have prepared for us tonight Phil uh, was from a that was now was this a television special? It was or? a television special and uh, quite interesting uh, because Carol Burnett uh, was the hostess mm -hmm. of this particular uh, one-hour production and it, it was titled Beatles in America and it was a look back at the February through March tour by the Beatles and the slant here was to get points of view from the Beatles and how they were affected with Beatlemania, not from the outside, but from the inside. Clumsy old bee. I went away and, and, and gave away the surprise. Okay, so it's the Beatles, right? And I would like to say right here and now that I'm as big a Beatle fan as the next guy, providing the next guy happens to be a teenager. But tonight we're going to see the Beatles as we've never seen them before. Everybody knows how America reacted to the Beatles, and now we're going to show you how the Beatles reacted to us as we show you the story of their fantastic tour of America as they saw it.
through their very own eyes. I know you're as anxious to see this as I am, so uh, let's roll the film. Looks like some sort of national emergency, doesn't it? Only it's not. This, my friends, is success. The loudest, craziest, noisiest, most spectacular success America has ever seen. It was achieved by four young men from England who hate haircuts, and they call themselves the Beatles. Tonight, we're going to see things from the Beatles' point of view. How do four young men in their early 20s react to suddenly having a whole country idolize them? Now, we know they were under pressure night and day, but how did they take it? Now, tonight, we'll all be right in the middle of it. We'll be with the boys in their hotel rooms as they kid among themselves with a brand of humor which has delighted adults as much as it has the teenagers. We'll relax with them late at night. We'll ride with them on the train to Washington. We'll see what it's like from the Beatles' point of view. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Carol Burnett from the Beatles in America special that originally aired November 12, 1964. An inside look at uh, the Beatles phenomenon as experienced firsthand by the Beatles themselves in their own words. Audio, courtesy of our friend Phil Grice, ATVAudio.com. I really felt that this particular uh, television broadcast was... Um, so refreshingly different because it really tried to um, focus in on how the Beatles reacted to all this pressure. Most reports, news, specials had to do with uh, looking at the Beatles. Here we were looking within the Beatles' uh, point of view. And there are interviews with the Beatles and uh, a lot of personalized uh, anecdotes that uh, exist in, in this particular broadcast. Earlier in our retrospective, Phil, we looked at not only the Beatles' impact on music, the Beatles' impact on television, how that led to you know, not only the British invasion but, uh, in music, but also the British invasion in television, because it sparked a desire for all things British on, on the network level. It also famously uh, inspired NBC to create a television series about a Beatles-like group called The Monkees, which uh, right. there are parallels between Beatlemania and what The Monkees experienced because, you know, during that uh, one- to two-year period, they experienced a very a heightened sense of craziness, and it's very rare to, ex to, to get a sense of what it's like to be in that bubble from the participants themselves. And and we've been basically reminiscing about only year number one mm -hmm. in America. I, I mean, so much was happening, and certainly so many doors were opening to so many other 
British pop singers, uh, rock and rollers, the Rolling Stones, Dave Clark Five, um, Herman's Hermits. Yeah, you, you know, the, the, the list goes on. And it's really hard to believe that this was 50 years ago. It is hard to believe it was 50 years ago. It's the things that pop into one's head right now. You're in town uh, for a couple of days. You, you know, you, you live in New York. You, you New York were born and bred. A couple of years ago, we did a special on the 30th anniversary of the death of John Lennon. Now, John Lennon, his last, uh, I think his last 10, 15 years, he lived in New York. And he loved living in New York because it's one of, it was one of the few places that he could be John Lennon and Absolutely. nobody would notice him because they're just, there's, what, 10 million people in New York? He and Yoko Ono um, and this son, they, they lived at the Dakotas, mm-hmm. and that was right opposite Central Park West. And they would literally take strolls. Um, I, as a director of photography, primarily in documentaries, had a rare moment early in my career when um, after a two-year period, a year and a half went by, after the death of John Lennon, Yoko Ono finally accepted an interview with the BBC, and I was working for the BBC for 20 years. I had access on that particular day to go into the Dakotas, and we did a whole report with uh, Yoko Ono with the white um, piano, and um, it, it, it was a moving experience for me, you know, because of the legendary John Lennon yeah. and, and the Beatles and what they represented. Um, and uh, it's something I, I, I still remember very vividly. Well, my friend Dave Sholin, a radio personality, a former publisher of the Gavin Report, which is the Bible in the music industry, he was in John and Yoko's apartment on the morning of December 8, 1980, and he conducted a three-hour interview for RKO Radio. And wow. he got, you know, he laid, he laid down tape, he got the whole thing, and then he flew back to the West Coast, and by the time he, you know, got into his car at the airport, he had heard the news That's that John incredible. was shot. Yeah, wow. so it was just... First of all, it's it's a rare experience to, to spend three hours in an intimate setting with someone like John Lennon and to find out that uh, he'd been killed less than... Yeah, very you know, young, very young, and also George Harrison, very young. Yes. Uh, not uh, dying in the same manner, obviously, but, but no, he dying died, died from cancer, uh, about 10 years cancer at a very young age. Yeah. And, you know, we're left with two of the four, Fab. Yeah, uh, Paul and... Ringo and Ringo. Ringo used to get flack for his musical career, but in some respects, Ringo was one of the what was the only one to embrace it. I mean, John did towards the end, but uh, Ringo's always been able to embrace it. Also, and- Ringo diversified. He was in uh, television, PBS. Yes. Uh, That's right. He uh, did. He did Shining Time Station. Yeah, he's and- great. Yes, he was Mr. Conductor. He was the yes. original Mr. Conductor. Yes. That's right. I forgot With about that. With his English accent. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have an English accent, Phil. You have a distinct Brooklyn accent, but uh, it's what makes you unique, and it's, it always makes it fun to talk to you. And, and once again, we are grateful that you have shared a few, a, a, just, just a, a few minutes when you think of the vast body of work that you have as part of the uh, collection of our, at, at Archival Television Audio dot com we're always privileged to share that whatever you share part of it with our listeners well i love sharing it with you and tv confidential it keeps me going i have this great passion for um television lost uh, via the audio uh, track 
and um, I don't get tired of it. And to listen to really good, pristine sound going back 50, 50, 60 years ago, uh, knowing that the um, sound I'm hearing is uh, nowhere else to be heard except through my ears, I mean, there's something very, very special about that. Phil Grice is the founder and owner of Archival Television Audio, the largest vintage TV soundtrack archive in the world, featuring more than 15,000 hours of audio from more than 12,000 original television programs and original television broadcasts from the 50s, 60s, and early 1970s, the golden age of television. For more information, go to ATV audio.com. Phil, great to see you again. Looking forward to our next conversation and to seeing you again. It's my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to our next uh, get-together. We'll play part two of our conversation with Simon Napier-Bell when we come back. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.